Good morning. <clears throat> hey, if you are a guest with us, I want to welcome you. It is true, we don't normally have our church looking like an arcade, um, but maybe we'll keep it uh, if it goes really well. Pac-Man will just be a, a fixture for New Hope, uh, be a good thing. Hey, I, this is um, the beginning of what has become a milestone week in the year of our church, every year. Uh, this is a week that kind of uh, stands alone as being uh, extra special. And uh, I got here in 2008 to this church and was just attending and joined the staff in 2009. And so for 10 or 11 years, I've witnessed what VBS can do. And for the longest time, I underestimated it. I underestimated the impact that a week like this coming week can have in the life of a child. But I've heard countless stories over these 10 or 11 years of people whose lives have been completely changed because of their time here at New Hope uh, at VBS. I had people after every single service. One family came to me after first service and said our lives were completely changed by VBS at New Hope because that's our, our kids went and then they came home and ended up bringing us to church and then uh, we were baptized into Christ here at New Hope and have served for uh, 30 plus years and even uh, as an elder. And so you think about the impact that a week like this can have. I mean, uh, people have vivid memories of the different dramas that take place, all the decorations, the themes, the games, uh, the music, the snacks, the crafts. It's all an incredible thing uh, and has an incredible impact on the lives of so many people each and every year. Um, but it's a special week, not because of the crafts and the games and the fun or even the party we're going to throw for the community on Friday night. Uh, it's a special week because for three and a half hours, Monday to Friday, 400 kids are going to be exposed to the truth of Jesus. For three and a half hours, Monday through Friday, this next week, 400 kids are going to be exposed to Jesus' people. And they're going to be taught or reminded that they're not alone in their pain. That their future is bright, that their life has a purpose. And a week like this has the potential to change their entire lives. And I cannot overstate that. So I want to take a moment to say thank you for being a church that invests in the lives of people, particularly a church that invests in the lives of children. Many of you are taking weeks of vacation. Like, let that sink in. They, you have X amount of vacation weeks at your place of work, and you're going to take an entire week off to come and invest in all these kids. Many of you have been staying up and doing decorations. Many of you have been prayer walking this building for weeks leading up to this. And I just want to say thank you. Even for those of you that are like, I'm not directly connected to VBS, I'm not going to be a part of it, but you give. When you give financially to this church, understand that it makes a big difference. When we tithe, God uses that. VBS for 400 kids is completely free. No kid gets charged anything for being a part of this because you give sacrificially. And so thank you. It means a lot. And it impacts kids in a tremendous, tremendous way. And so today we are going to have a standalone sermon, if you will. We've just completed an entire series in the Gospel of Mark, and next week we launch into First and Second Kings, studying the life of Elijah, and we'll go from there throughout the rest of the year. But today kind of stands alone, and we're going to study the passage that's the overarching uh, passage for VBS this year. My hope in doing that is two things. One, to give parents, or, or even uh, if you're associated with the kids that are coming to VBS, gives you something to talk to them about, because this is what they're going to be learning about throughout the week. But if you're like, I'm not a part of VBS, so this kind of doesn't affect me, it does, because it's straight from the Bible, and I think it's going to rest heavy on your heart like it has on mine uh, as I've been preparing this over the last week. And so we're going to uh, camp out, and uh, if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to grab it. Can I be an old man just for a minute? 
Is that all right? No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, there's something neat uh, when my father-in-law talks about when he, you know, as he's preached over the years, when he says, turn to, and you hear the pages open. Uh, for me, it's, hey, would you turn to Second Peter, and the faces start glowing. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, but I want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, get one. And there's something about putting the phone or the device aside. And they're great tools. Praise God. I'm not, yes, use them. But there's something about opening up the Bible and reading it off a page. If you don't have a Bible, the one that's in front of you is our gift to you. Don't feel bad if you don't have one today. Oh, turn your screen on. Don't feel bad about it. It's totally good. But we're going to be in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. And as you're turning to 2 Peter, let me set us up uh, this way. It's a true story I came across this week uh, of a family that had a Great Dane dog. Now, if you're not familiar with Great Danes, um, they're like horses. And uh, my family, we've never owned one, but in the last three years, we've had two separate Great Danes live in our home for a period of time as we've had two separate families live with us for a little bit. And they each had Great Danes. And so these dogs, these horses, have to do like three-point turns in my small house just to get around. Like they took up more space than we did. Uh, And this family had a Great Dane dog. They lived in Portland, Oregon. And this dog, three years old, was in a lot of pain. Um, Like just so much discomfort, so much pain. So over the course of a couple days, they decided, hey, we better get this dog checked out. And so they took the dog to uh, an emergency clinic and the vet, um, uh, her name, let me make sure I get her name uh, right if you're gonna look up this story. Um, Her name was Ashley McGee. And Ashley uh, says, hey, we gotta do an x-ray because the dog's in so much pain. They do an x-ray, they find there's a mass in the dog's stomach, something the dog ate. She said, look, I don't know what it is, but I do know this, it's gotta come out and there's only one way to get it out, so we have to do surgery. So she performs a two and a half hour surgery on this horse dog. And uh, as she opens him up, she realizes uh, why this dog was in so much pain because she pulled out 43 and a half dirty socks from the stomach of this great Dane dog. True story. Here's a picture of the socks after the operation. <laughs> they entered this picture into the, uh, the, the most fascinating veterinary stories contest and they won by far, right? No wonder the dog was in pain, right? Like, I'd be in a lot of pain, too, with 43 and a half dirty socks stuck in my stomach. Like, it, it was horrible. And so the operation was required to get the socks out. But I got to thinking, I mean, I hear this. I'm like, this dog was in a lot of pain. But the same thing is true of so many of us. Many of us, we get in a lot of pain because of the things that we put into our hearts, into our lives. Many of the things that we take in end up sitting there causing all kinds of discomfort and pain in our lives. Right? What you put into your life, what you allow to come into your life, what you allow to affect you is going to have a major impact on you. For many of you, you're sitting here today and you carry some guilt and you carry shame. You've started to believe certain lies about you. You're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. Many of you carry shame because of something you've said to somebody. Our words last a long time and they can hurt deeply. Many of you are sitting here and you carry a wound deep inside of you that you carry around with you because of something somebody else did to you that should have never been done. And that's a pain that you carry with you. And here's the deal. You have a real enemy. And what Satan desires more than anything else in your life is to get you to focus on those things that have caused you pain. He wants you to focus on your current situation, your current pain or past pain, Because he knows that if he can get you to think about that, it's going to prevent you from growing and maturing. And his number one goal is to stop you from becoming who God intends you to be. And so for many of us, that comes in the form of all the stuff that we hold on to, all the junk that we keep in our heart, all the stuff that we allow to keep coming into our lives because we refuse to mature and to grow. 
Well, let me give you an example, and I'll use the example of the guy that wrote the letter that we're going to actually be looking at, Peter. See, Peter was one of Jesus' right-hand men. He was in the inner circle. Jesus had 12 disciples, but three of them had more of an inside scoop with Jesus. He spent a lot of time with him. He was around him all the time, seeing him do all kinds of incredible things, spent countless time having personal conversations with him. He loved him. And Peter's a guy that, uh, in addition to that, he would spend most of his time outdoors because he traveled around a lot. So you got to picture this. Put yourself back in his time. So Peter's the guy that every morning he would wake up. He didn't have an alarm clock like we do. He didn't have a phone to set an alarm to wake him up. Every morning, Peter woke up to the sound of a rooster crowing. And he hated it. Because every morning he woke up to the rooster crowing, it was like a knife being pierced into his heart and twisted. Because every time he heard that sound, it brought him back to the worst day of his life. It brought him back to this pain that he was keeping deep inside of him. He brought him back to this pain that Satan wanted to use to have Peter define his self-worth with. You remember the scene. On the last night of his life, the night before the cross, Jesus gathered his disciples in an upper room. And he gathers these people that he loves dearly around him, and he begins to explain to them he's about to be betrayed and he's about to die. And this didn't sit well with them, naturally, but especially Peter, who stands up and says, not me, Jesus. Like, maybe these other guys, I can't speak for them, but that's not going to be me. I'm going to be with you forever. I followed you for three and a half years. You've changed everything for me, and I do not intend to walk away from you at all. I will be with you to the end. He even says, I will die for you. And you think, that's so brave, Peter. And that's so noble. And Jesus says, no, by the end of the night, you're going to betray me. No, not me. And so then as the pressure mounts and all of the people begin to flee away from Jesus and everyone begins to abandon him, you find Peter having three different opportunities. The first time, do you know him? He says, no, I don't. The second time, I'm pretty sure you're the one that was around him. I don't know who this man is. The third time, I don't know him. I've got nothing to do with this man, Jesus. And the Bible tells us in that moment, the rooster crowed, just as Jesus said it would. Now, many times that's lost on us. But I want this, let, let it sink in just for a moment. Don't let this pass by your, your mind. Allow yourself to feel this just for a minute. The rooster crows, and the Bible actually tells us that in the moment that he hears the rooster crow and he locks eyes with Jesus. Imagine the weight of that moment. Just a few hours earlier, I'll die for you. Now he's looking into the eyes of the one he just betrayed three times. Failure, failure, failure. How do you pass that? How do you move past that kind of a mess up? How do you get past messing up your life like that three different times? There's a simple answer, and honestly, it's a VBS Sunday school type answer. The answer is Jesus. But here's the thing. We oftentimes complicate things that were never intended to be complicated. It's rather simple. The solution to our failures and our self-worth is Jesus. It is an intimate, growing, thriving, transforming relationship with Jesus that has the ability to change everything for us. I mean, just think about the way that Peter lays this out. Remember, simple is not bad. He just kind of lays it out for us. Look at how he begins right. I want you to just picture this is the guy that failed three times. Picture him writing these words. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, we're going to walk through uh, six or so verses here, six or seven verses, pretty slowly here, but this is the driving verse for VBS this year. Essentially, you could translate it the way it was quoted earlier in our service. God has given you everything that you need to live a godly life. Now, that's coming from Peter. Everything that you need has been given to you. This is the guy that's failed three times. This is the guy that denied Jesus three separate times. This is foot in your mouth, cut off the ear, speak too soon. Peter, who has messed up time and time and time again, and now he's writing. What is it that can take a guy that's failed that many times in his life and give him the power, the ability to say, I've got everything I need to live a life that will please God. Everything I need, God has given me to live a life that he'll be pleased with despite all of my failures. Well, he kind of lays it out. Look at how he describes certain things. He uses the term life and godliness, to live a godly life. Those are actually two separate words that have two separate meanings here. They, don't, they flow well together in the English language, but in the original language, they mean two separate things. The first thing is this, to, to live a life, what he's speaking of there, the word you could translate it as reverence, to stand in reverent awe of God. That's what it's speaking of. God has given me everything I need to revere him, to stand in awe of him. Then he uses the term godliness. And this word, you could trace a direct connection to the idea of obedience, to actually follow up what Jesus has called me to do with action. I'm actually doing what he's called me to do. So there's two things that he's got in mind here. God has given you everything that you need to stand in awe of him and then do everything that he told you to do. This is what he's explaining to them. But then Peter, in his brilliance, says you can't do this on your own. Recently, I was with two different uh, groups of people that kind of illustrated this well, this idea of reverence and not reverence. I, I was around a group of guys, and I, I was invited to be at this gathering. And I'm, I'm sitting around with these guys, and they all claim to be believers, and I'm sure that they are. Uh, that's not the point of what we're saying. But as we begin to sit, their language began to like, make me a little bit uncomfortable using certain terms, saying certain things. And these are all guys that are supposed to be like following the Lord closely. Then they began to joke about certain things and the direction of the joking was getting pretty dark and making me, again, pr pretty uncomfortable. Then they began to, certain things with their actions, certain things that they were doing, I began to, again, man, what is, what is going on? Like we're supposed to be here to celebrate together, to be uh, focused on Jesus. And, and just the whole environment, and, and you probably uh, won't be surprised by this at all, but I got pretty quiet. Like, I'm, I'm pretty uncomfortable here with the joking, and, and I don't, I, this is a group of guys that had lost their reverence for God. They didn't look at him and revere him. These were guys that, and they would tell you this, that were told their whole life to be a Christian, act this way, this way, you have to do this, have to do this, have to do this. And they rebelled against it to the point where now they were going to live the way they wanted to live, and there's no telling them any different. To contrast that, I sat at lunch with another guy, and I'm sitting there listening to this guy talk, and there was this infectious joy about him. He just had this joy, and I just enjoyed being in his company. As we began to talk, he began to uh, lay out certain things that he, he desired for life, and I'm just like, man, this guy's on the right track, and we just had this enjoyable time together because the focus of this guy was, man, I just love what God's done in my life, and I just believe what he's going to be doing. He was just focused on it. He had this reverence for God, and, and out of that, he wanted to obey, and what I learned was this. That obedience that's not birthed at a place of reverence will always burn you out on religious behavior. Just doing because you have to do, do because you have to do, do because you have to do. But obedience that flows from a place of reverence becomes worship. When I start by seeing Jesus for all that he's done and everything that he's done in my life, all that he has called me to, 
then I begin to allow that to, to affect my life. And as I got in the car after that second meeting, all I could think about was these two separate settings. And I'm getting in the car and I'm driving back here uh, to the office to work and I think to myself, I've got three sons. I've got four kids, three sons. And I've got, what kind of man do I want my boys to be? I mean, this is what Peter's saying. He's like, who do you want to be? That's the question he's posed. Who do you want to be? Somebody who reveres all that God has done in your life. Not somebody who says, I've got it figured out. I know all the answers. You can't tell me. I'm the one that knows it. It's just someone who stops and says, put all of that aside. I just want to see Jesus for all that he's done and who he is. And out of that, I'll obey. Out of that, I'll begin to walk with him. But I want to see him. What Peter's saying is God has given you everything that you need to do that, but you are incapable of doing it on your own. That's why the very first words of verse 3 are his divine power fascinating reference to the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, look, I've tried that on my own, guys. I've tried to just focus on Jesus and live the way, but I can't do it in my own power. I failed three times. Paul would write in Romans 7, the very thing I want to do, man, I just want to focus on Jesus. I can't seem to do the things I don't want to do. I find myself doing, ah, I need help. This is why he says it's his divine nature. This is a direct reference to the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Look at how he begins to describe it in verse 4. He says, by which... Through the work of his Holy Spirit, the calling he's placed on your life, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Both the promises he's made and kept and the promises he is yet to keep but will. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of his sinful desire. Where do we encounter the promises of Jesus? Where do we encounter the promises of God? Begins with a B, ends in Bible. The Bible, God's word. You're with me. Just making sure everyone's here today, okay? What he's telling us is this. The Holy Spirit's primary job is to bring us to the Word of God. It's to remind us of God's Word over and over and over again in our moments of weakness. When temptation sets in, and you felt this, you know what it feels like to have the corruption of the world weighing heavy on you, the temptation to jump in and participate in jokes, the, the participation in certain things that you shouldn't be doing. Young people, you feel this more than any of us, to, to participate in certain things that people are doing in a party, or you have a boyfriend or girlfriend who's putting pressure on you. Maybe you're at work and you are tempted to cut corners or to make decisions that will benefit you but hurt other people. Whatever it is, we have felt the weight of the culture pushing down on us and Satan wanting to use that to corrupt our souls. What Peter is saying is God's given you everything you need, everything you need to be able to, to get to, withstand all of that. And he's done that because of his promises. Well, one of the promises that Jesus made comes in John chapter 15 and 16. And that promise is that he was going to send a helper. He was going to send what the Bible calls a counselor. That word literally means one who comes alongside to help. This counselor. And what he's describing here, this is war language. He says, you've got two separate environments vying for your allegiance. You've got the word of God that wants you to, be, to have allegiance to it and to live for it. Then you've got the corruption of the world that's all around you that wants desperately to devour you as well. And you have to live this life and make these decisions. And he said, but you have a helper to help you do that because you can't do it on your own. You have a helper. Now this word helper uh, is the Greek word paraclete. It was used outside of the Bible oftentimes. Many times Greek war uh, literature will describe the paraclete. Same exact word used uh, by John in, in John 15 and 16. And this word was used because when uh, the Greeks would go to war and they were in a, a tough situation, they had a technique where they would go back to back with one another. And I've got your back, you've got my back, and now we can keep fighting. 
And the term used for the person who had your back was the paraclete or the helper. So when John's describing the Holy Spirit, he's saying when the world is pressing in on you all over the way, God's got your back. He sent you a helper. And this helper, in his divine power, is going to give you everything you need to withstand the pressure of the world that's weighing in all around you. Essentially, what he's saying is this. He's saying, real power. I mean, corruption-battling power, going to war against the corruption that's trying to devour your soul. That type of power, that corruption-battling power, it's not man-made. You can't manifest it yourself. It comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is God-provided. And so for that reason, here's how worship works. Because God has given us everything. We can stand in awe of Him. The Bible says that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. So in the middle, when I didn't deserve it, look at all that you did. And then you sent your Spirit to live inside of me. I cannot believe what you've done for me. And you stand in awe and reverence of Him. From that place, you get to then obey Him. But now your obedience isn't an obligation. You're not being pressed down by some oppressive ruler. You're standing in awe of a God who's given you more than you ever deserved. And now you get to live a life that honors that. And now my life, what I'm offering to God in obedience to what he's called me to, is coming from a place of love, a place of joy. This is worship. This is why Paul would write, this is your spiritual act of worship. Offer your life to God. Invite him into every single part of your life. This is your spiritual act of worship. But he describes it interestingly. Look how he continues. He says, for this very reason, verse 5. So he says, because of all that God's done, for this very reason, make every effort. Now, what he's saying is you have a role to play. You do have a role to play in your own growth, in your own maturity, in your own development. You have a part to play in this. Dallas Willard often said, grace is, is opposed to earning. You can't earn grace. It's a gift you get that you don't deserve, but it is not opposed to effort. You have a role to play in this. So for this very reason, make every effort to supplement or in addition to the faith that you have in God, make sure that you're also focused on developing in these areas. So supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning they keep you from getting corrupted. But if these qualities are not increasing in you, then you're blind and you've taken your eyes. He says you've forgotten that he cleansed you from your former sins. You have taken your eyes off of Jesus and you've tried to do this in your own power. And what happens is you're blind now to the fact that the only reason you can obey is because he's given you a helper and he gave you a helper because of what he did for you and you stand in awe of what he did for you, then obedience flows. But you try to do this on your own without the paraclete, without the helper, without that power inside of you, surging inside of you, then you're on a crash course for failure. And Peter can relate to this. You see, this, this idea that God has given you everything, it's, like, it's not like you've taken a, a piece of furniture out of the box from Ikea and you start putting it together and you realize they forgot two really important bolts. And so you call them up, they're like, well, you got to take it apart because we don't even know where to get those bolts. We'll just send you a whole new thing. And you're just like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I have to start all over. Like, anyone who's ever bought furniture from Ikea, you know how that feels. Like, this is driving me nuts. This is not what building a life around Christ is like. He says, instead, it's like every single piece has been provided for you. But it comes with some assembly. So now you have to begin to build your life. Right? He's given us everything we need. And now we just have to start building our life around the things that he's given to us. The blessings that he's poured out around us. And he begins to lay them out. Look at how he describes them. He says the first thing, virtue, you might call it goodness. 
the word literally means moral excellence. So I'm going to build my life around making decisions that are morally acceptable to God, meaning when certain jokes start coming my way, I'm going to withstand the urge to do that because it doesn't bring him honor. He says knowledge. That word is, is actually practical knowledge, meaning I'm going to build my life around actually doing what he called me to do. I'm actually going to figure out this is what he wants me to do, and it's this discerning between what is true and what is untrue. That's the knowledge it's talking about. Self-control. This is a deep inner strength to resist the things that are tempting you, that are vying for your allegiance, that are not honoring to God. And so I need to have self-control. Well, the Holy Spirit gives you that self-control. Perseverance means to walk with a load. When the weight of the world is on your shoulders, you can persevere and get through it because the Holy Spirit is whispering into your ears the words of Jesus. Godliness, we've talked about that, reverence and obedience. Brotherly kindness, this is the Greek word Philadelphia, which is ironic because that city has nothing to do with being kind. Um, sorry if that's your place. I've, Eagles fans are tough. Uh, but this describes literally what, what the word means is it's a relationship among family members. Meaning, I'm going to love you like I'd love my actual brother, my sister, someone who I care deeply for. I, that's the kind of love I'm going to have for you. And if you're going to be able to, in your own power, have that love, just be around annoying people for a little while. It's really hard to do that in your own power, but he says the, the work that God is doing, the power that he puts inside of you, gives you the ability to love them. And then he uses the last one is love. And that's the Greek word agape. And I love this because essentially what that word means is this, that in my relationship with you, my deepest desire is your good. That deep down, my deepest desire is for your good, for you to flourish. Have you ever been around someone who really makes you feel that way? Now, the, the person that comes to my mind is my father-in-law, who I did not use this in first service. He would have killed me. Uh, so don't tell him. <laughs> but every time I'm around him, I leave feeling better. Every single time. 14 years I've been involved in his life pretty closely. For 14 years, every conversation, I walk away thinking, man, I just feel better. I feel like his deepest desire every time we talk is, to, is for me to thrive and to do well. Every time. This is what Peter is saying. This is what the power of the Holy Spirit does in your life as he begins to develop these things in you. He begins to have you build your life on the very things that we're called to build our lives on. But it's not always easy, is it? And so three things I want to give us to, to kind of walk away from in, in regards to maturity or growing or what it means to allow that power to really surge through us. What does it develop as we grow and mature? These things are intended uh, to be communicated to the kids this next week somehow. Hopefully these are the seeds that are planted, but I think we'll all wrestle with them as well. Here's the first thing about maturity or growth is that God takes our maturity very seriously. Very seriously. Let me use my own story as kind of an example here. 13 years ago today, I stood in this very spot and uh, said my vows to my wife. Today is our 13th wedding anniversary, and right here in this very spot is where we, we had our vows, pledged our allegiance to one another. In that moment, we went from single to married. We went from a, a place in our life where we would think about ourselves place in my life where I was really mostly concerned with taking care of what I needed to now I'm married and united to this other person who I need to think about and care about. I no longer could think the same for the rest of my life. Could I think the way that I thought before that? I was a completely different person. I went from single to married, uh, selfish to a little less selfish, and I've worked on it for 13 years. All right. So 
th that's what took place. Well, the Bible says that when you were baptized into Christ, you were made into a new creation. Now, you went from dead to alive in that moment. You went from separated uh, from God to united uh, with God. You went from uh, working in your own power to now having the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And you could never uh, think the same. You're a completely and totally different person. And here's what we learn about this transformation is that God did not commit to transforming you halfway. See, God took your transformation very, very seriously. And he has provided, according to what Peter says, everything that you could possibly need to be transformed. Everything you could possibly need to be transformed. You just have to start assembling that life. You're not earning it. You're responding to it. This incredible gift that's been given to you. This is why Paul writes in Philippians 2, and we're going to study Philippians in the fall, but what he writes is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What he, what he means when he says that is this. When he says work out, according to what Peter says here and what Paul would write in Philippians, is working out comes after what has been worked inside. So God works inside of you. He transforms your life, and you work that out. You continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life each and every day. It's kind of like pouring out a puzzle on the table. You ever put puzzles together, right? So you put a puzzle on the table. You don't need to go buy more pieces. Everything's been provided for you. You just have to build the picture. And this is what he's saying. Work out your salvation. When he says fear and trembling, here's essentially what he means. Take God seriously. He's not a hobby. He's not an add-on to your life. This fear and trembling is just, I just take you seriously. I just want to see you and all that you've done in my life. Second thing is this, maturity is simple but not easy. See, when it comes to after saying our wedding vows here 13 years ago, uh, it was pretty simple. I know what I need to do to be a good husband. She knows what she needs to do to be a good wife. We've got what we need to do that, but uh, anyone who's been married will tell you that it is not that easy. It's pretty simple. See, when we got married, we were 100% married. I didn't have to work every year at becoming more and more married. We are married. I just needed my life to match up with that commitment. But it's not always easy. It's simple, not always easy. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, from this moment on, the covenant sustains the love. The commitment you've made sustains the love, not the love of the covenant. Feelings come and go. Commitment lasts forever. And this commitment we've made transforms us. In the same way, following Jesus is rather simple. We've been given everything we need to be faithful. But it's pretty tough, isn't it? We need a helper. That's why for 13 years, Sarah and I have relied on forgiveness and grace and mercy in our marriage. And we've needed to lean heavily into some couples that have walked a few years ahead of us, that have mentored us and cared about us, and other people that have come alongside of us. This is why I can't understand when a couple says that we're married, but we're not attached to a community in any way. When we're not a part of the church. I, I can't understand how you think that's going to thrive. And in the same way, when I'm Walking as a Christian, to think that I can do that without a community around me, supporting me, coming alongside of me, being that helper, helping me see what the Holy Spirit's doing in my life. You see, maturity is simple, but it's not always easy. The last thing is this. Maturity takes time and intentionality. And I think this is the hardest lesson for us to learn because we live in America. We want everything fast. We want everything quick. And if we have to sacrifice a little bit to get the job done faster, we're willing to do that. We just got to get it done. And we want to mature and we want to grow faster to the point that we get so impatient with our own maturity that we impose that impatience on the maturity of other people. And I begin to say, I need to grow a lot faster. I need to become more, but so do you. And then all of a sudden, we are, are hurting our relationships because we can't be patient and understand that growth and maturity 
and development. They happen at a much slower pace than we're oftentimes comfortable with. I've always had this desire, like I've always had this appreciation for for men that are much older. They have this wisdom, and I've always loved sitting and hearing certain stories. I mean, we got to sit at this wedding rehearsal, and uh, the the mother of the bride apologized because we were with the grandparents, and I know they were talking your ear off. I was like, you don't understand. That's right up my alley. I love it. The wisdom that they have. So I've always desired to kind of be a few steps ahead of where I'm at, and I'll never forget my wife saying to me one time, uh, right after I stepped into the lead minister role here at New Hope, just a few years ago, I had vision and ambition, let's go, let's go, let's go. And she said to me in a moment of just brilliance one day, she just said, Rob, you're not who you're going to be when you're 50. Slow down. Slow down. You see, I've always admired the older, wiser person, but I've always underestimated the 60 years it took them to get there. You see, that's what, that's what maturity is. It takes us time, and we have to learn lessons. That being said, what I'd want to share with you today is this, that God's not in love with some future version of you. He loves you right now. He doesn't just love you for who you're going to become. He loves you in the moment and in the becoming process. This is why he says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, meaning there's no expectation of perfection, just growth, just maturity, one more step, continuing down the path, developing in your relationship with the Lord. Uh, when we were pregnant with our first, uh, I was a paranoid parent. I think this is actually the hardest lesson for our kids. If you're like me, I would like to mature sometimes for them to spare them the pain they're going to have to go through in order to mature. And I can see some of the lessons before they have to learn them. And I'm like, I just want to do that for you so you don't have to hurt because this one's going to be painful. And that, I don't know if you're like me, but that's it. And so when you think about VBS, you think about these kids, all 400 kids coming in, and you're just thinking there's so many lessons you guys have to learn to grow and this is going to be hard. And I remember when she was pregnant with Caleb, a, a man uh, older and wiser than me shared this bit of advice as he saw my paranoia creeping in in this class that we were a part of. And he said these words. He said, Rob, your son, it's my oldest Caleb, must experience the grace of God in his life just like you did. And here's the hardest part, man. You can't do that for him. That's his. And this is what VB, VBS is all about. It's about a collection of people saying to 400 little kids, we can't do this for you. But what we can do is point you to the one who can. Just just look at Jesus. Look at all that he's done. It's incredible. And then live accordingly. Worship. But I don't know if you're like me in this way either, but I've oftentimes learned that the lesson I often think kids need to learn is the very same one that God's trying to teach me. Let's pray.